study of Exodus, we are coming to look specifically at the latter part of the book that establishes for us the worship uh, around the tabernacle, some of the significance theologically, symbolically, typically uh, of the tabernacle we want to draw our attention to. Now remember please that the basic theme that we're seeing in Exodus is that of deliverance unto servants. Deliverance unto servants. Our attention in our little survey has focused upon the magnificent and powerful, gracious deliverance of God of these people from the land of bondage, from the land of captivity, uh, focusing upon God's power, His grace, the blood of the sacrifice. Uh, Beautiful lessons and pictures here of how it is that God saves His people. But those people were saved for a purpose. They were delivered for a purpose. Their service now unto the Lord uh, is in the last half of this book particular, the principal focus of attention. And not the least of that is going to be their service uh, of worship, their service around the tabernacle. Great, great instructions. Now, I think we noted last time, and I would emphasize this again here, that what we are looking at here from a interpretational perspective uh, is a picture prophecy. We call it a type, uh, but it is really a picture prophecy uh, of great spiritual truths that have their ultimate fulfillment, their anti-type in the person and the work uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, When we come to this mosaic period, this mosaic economy, uh, this particular institution of the covenant uh, that God makes with uh, the people of Israel, I think the highlight here is the use that God makes of these object lessons uh, to teach them spiritual truths. It's imperative that we do not see what God is doing here with Israel, what God is doing with Moses uh, at this time as a parenthetical period that has no relationship or bearing to what has preceded in that Abrahamic covenant, uh, in the Noachian covenant, in that covenant that God made at the very beginning. Uh, when he promised that there would be a seed uh, of deliverance. Uh, And that seed, of course, is the person of Christ. There is a continuity here uh, that we must understand. Uh, And as I believe I mentioned last time, it's not without significance that the book of uh, Genesis that draws our attention to that uh, seed of the woman that will be the reverser of the curse, Uh, that God-man that will uh, reverse the curse as revealed to Noah, Uh, the seed of Abraham and the development of that. That record was written to the same people at the same time uh, that are getting the book of Exodus here uh, to teach them that they are not to substitute uh, all of these object lessons, these symbolic signs as the reality. The object lessons are pictures of the spiritual truth. And it doesn't take, I dare say, if we keep this in mind, uh, a great deal of spiritual insight even Uh, to see the significance of the pictures. God used object lessons as a means of clarifying, as a means of illustrating uh, the truth that he is uh, setting forth before the people. Uh, So I emphasize the typology. What we're going to be looking at here as we come to look at the tabernacle is not something that I, as an interpreter of the Bible in the 20th century, Uh, look back and try to, in some way, rescue the Old Testament for Christian relevance. 
Uh, it is not based upon my imagination or whatever it is I think I see uh, that may even bless my heart. I, I dare say I've talked to people that have been blessed in Scripture uh, from the most absurd interpretations of Scripture. Uh, well, you know, the Lord is sovereign. Uh, but we want to avoid, all right? I, I don't want to get into this, this completely as we approach <coughs> the, the Word of God. I'm having trouble with my voice today. Can you recognize that? I'm having trouble. So, uh, I'm getting old. Sick, sick, sick man. Uh, but whatever. I'm doing fine. Uh, doesn't sound like it, but I really am. Uh, what we want to avoid uh, is, is this uh, notion, I said, I don't want to develop this completely. Uh, but there is this idea of interpretation that we read it right and we, we trust the Holy Spirit uh, to, to teach us something. And uh, if, as soon as I get something out of it, all right, we're, this is how we read the Bible, right? I want to read the Bible to get something out of it for my soul uh, that day. And, and so we read, and as soon as I get that blessing, all right, then, then I'm on my way. Well, I'm, don't misunderstand me. I want us to get something from the Bible, but I want us to get what God wants us to get. All right. I want us to get what God wants us to get. What did God intend for us to get? What is the message here? Not just subjectively, how do I respond to that? Uh, the, the thing that we talk about here in interpretation is whether we are concerned with the author's intent or the reader response. All right. Are we concerned about author intent or reader response? Uh, where is the truth? Uh, and I submit that I must be primarily concerned with what the author, ultimately the Spirit of God and God Himself as the, as the author, intended to say and intended me to mean. Uh, and, and we live in a day, this is, you know, we, we, uh, in, in essence, this is the concept of neo-orthodoxy. You, you hear that term thrown around a lot. Uh, denying the absolute authority of God's Word. It's just this subjectivism, this personal encounter uh, that we have uh, with God as we look at this living book, yes, and God is speaking to me this way, you that way. And that's okay. It's a subjectivism. Uh, and uh, it, it re that's why we break down then all of these walls of doctrinal distinction. Hey, that's, if that's what you got out of it, fine. If that's what you got out of it, fine. Uh, and just emphasizing the subjectivism. And this is, we're against that, obviously, in the orthodoxy. But it's creeping in, this mentality, I submit, is creeping into some of our own uh, fundamental conservative evangelical uh, works. We have our Bible studies, right? Uh, we have our Bible studies, and, and we get together, and we assign this passage for this little group of friends to read, and we're going to get together next time and discuss what this says. And we go around the circle. What did you get out of this, Charles? And what did you get out of it, Marie? Uh, and what did you... What, oh, and, well... Frankly, understand what I'm saying. I don't care what you got out of it if that's not what God intended. All right? We are not just concerned about this subjectivism. I want to know what God meant, what God intended me to say. And I submit if I can't be blessed by what God intended, all right, that, then something is wrong. Then something is wrong. I'm saying that to say this. Typology is not just some means whereby now we come to the Scripture and say, hey, as I read that, that doesn't mean anything. That's not relevant uh, to my day and my age. All right, bingo, bango, ah, now it's a type of Christ or it's a type of this and now it's rescued. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Uh, types are not uh, some encoded message. All right, types are not some encoded message in the Word of God that it now takes a spiritually elite person to decode. Uh, no, they are going to be obvious. All right, the types 
uh, as picture prophecies are obvious revelations, uh, illustrations, analogies of truth that God expects us to see. Now, I, I don't want to belabor that point, but at the same time, uh, I do want to emphasize it. Because uh, as, as I go through here and look at some of these salient points about the tabernacle, uh, I, I want us to see these are obvious lessons uh, as to what God is teaching. And this whole Mosaic period, I think more than any other period uh, of Old Testament history, we have God giving these people uh, and giving us the object lessons that are to illustrate, uh, that are analogies of uh, the spiritual truths. All right? And the biggest mistake that I see uh, in uh, Old Testament interpretation is that we come oftentimes and we look at these object lessons that God is using in the Old Testament and we uh, sever that from, from the reality. Uh, and we look there at uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which is going to be the central piece of furniture that we'll talk about here in the, uh, in the tabernacle. And we make some conclusion, oh, in the Old Testament, those people thought God lived in a box. And here, here's, this, uh, here, here's this little uh, uh, gold box. It was ornate. It was beautiful. They carried it around because they wanted God to be with them. Well, God was never in a box. Right? He was not in a box in the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, it was a picture. It was a symbol, an object lesson, a visible object lesson uh, of the... Uh, presence of God. I don't even want to say it was a visible manifestation of the presence of God. God was not a box. All right? Did not live in a box. But this became an object lesson that God was giving to these people uh, to teach them that no matter wherever they were, wherever they went, God was present with them. Now, what was the reality? That God was always present with his people. Uh, and I'll argue, not today, I'm not going to argue, uh, but I'll argue that God was present with his believers in the Old Testament dispensation the same as he is with his believers in the New Testament dispensation. Uh, I would argue for an indwelling of the Spirit of God uh, in the Old Testament saint. But that, when I say that, that generally raises no small controversy, but I'm not opposed to that either, except not today. All right, we're not going to deal with that today. All I'm saying is that there is, uh, in the tabernacle, uh, very vivid and beautiful object lessons symbols uh, of spiritual truths that God was communicating to those people and God is communicating to us uh, as well. And the Mosaic period uh, is in many ways complex from that standpoint. We can get lost sometimes in the details, uh, but if we can just approach it with the realization that God is giving this not to confuse the truth, not to hide the truth, but to illustrate and to clarify the truth that has already been Revealed, And the tabernacle is right at the top of the list. Uh, and then that changes ultimately, of course, to the temple and the same theology there. All right, now, uh, we looked at some key texts in introducing this uh, last week. Uh, particularly, uh, let me begin by having you turn to 25, Exodus 25. And I think verses 8 and 9 are key statements here. The Lord is instructing Moses concerning the erection uh, of the tabernacle. Verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, that I may dwell among them. All right, there's the purpose. All right, there's the purpose. Uh, let them make me a sanctuary in order that I may dwell among them as a sign here of my presence with the people. Verse 9, According to all that I show thee, 
after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Now, that's an important statement that I'll play upon uh, here as we make our discussion. Uh, Moses uh, was not the architect uh, of the tabernacle design. Uh, it, it was not Bezalel that was the architect uh, of the tabernacle furniture. Everything here was according to the pattern that God had revealed uh, unto Moses. Uh, he was following God's instruction. Uh, just, just look back at the, uh, the end of the book. This becomes so uh, wonderfully clear uh, when you look at chapter 40. And I'm not going to uh, read through this entire chapter, but I just happen to uh, have my eye here on verse 16. Now here's the record of the tabernacle having been made by God's instructions. Uh, Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded him, so, uh, so did he. There's verse 19, uh, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, verse 25, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 27, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, all the way through this chapter, uh, the emphasis is upon the obedience of the people, the obedience of Moses in doing, in making this tabernacle and setting this whole thing up, that they were following the pattern and the order and the command of God. This was not man's devising. This was not man's imagination. Uh, this was a type of, and the word pattern here suggests that very thing, uh, it was a pattern of uh, what God was showing. Now, if you look at Hebrews, all right, let's just jump to Hebrews uh, for a moment. We learn exactly what the pattern was, what the reality was. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 uh, and verse 23. It was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You know the argument of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the apostle here is demonstrating the superiority uh, of the new covenant over the old covenant. Not because the message was different, and this is imperative to understand, the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant was not in a different message. It was the same message. That's the whole point. Uh, but in the administration of that message. Uh, Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, compares his ministry with Moses. And the conclusion is that, yes, my ministry is superior to that of Moses because we speak the message plainly. All right? No longer the need for the object lessons. No longer the need for all of these. We speak the message plainly because the reality uh, that all of that was pointing to has come. Uh, and that work has been uh, fulfilled. And the book of Hebrews establishes the same truth. But uh, I, I say, just notice there at verse 23, what was that tabernacle the pattern of? The tabernacle was the pattern of heaven itself. All right? uh, there is the spiritual reality. There is the spiritual reality. Uh, as it points to that uh, heavenly abode, and this is going to be an object lesson, and how men then are going to approach to heaven, how can we ultimately get to heaven? Uh, that manifest and primary presence of God, well, the tabernacle is going to show us, as it were, step by step, uh, how it is that a man approaches, uh, approaches God. But it's important here, I say, to emphasize that this is all of God's design. This is of God's making. This is the divine intent here. 
Uh, it's not that we're imposing something upon it that's not there. This is God's intent. Uh, and I submit if we don't see then these spiritual messages, uh, we're missing God's intent. We're only listening to part of what he says. Uh, and this involves indeed the full interpretation. Uh, this gets again to a matter of some controversy in hermeneutics. Uh, we have those that like to uh, emphasize just what they call a literal interpretation. Uh, well, I, I'm happy with that, so long as we do not confuse literal interpretation with surface interpretation. And I think that's what it ends up boiling down to. Uh, it, it, it honors God just to take Him at face value. All right. Well, that sounds good. All right, that sounds good, but there's, there's a full meaning. And I submit a literal meaning is a full meaning of the Scripture. Uh, I'll use this, uh, this analogy. You, know, what, you, you look at me, all right, and, and what you see is what you see. Uh, but what you see is not all there is about me. Right? Uh, I, you, you see my outside. Uh, you see my outside. You see what I'm, but if you interpreted everything that you know about me as a guy that uh, is... Uh, what, what, five, five, ten and a half, maybe five, ten and three quarters, who always wanted to be six foot but never made it, uh, if, if, and graying and wears glasses, and if that's all you know about me, and all, that's a, a surface interpretation, but that would be an insult to me. All right? That'd be an insult. There's more to me than what meets the eye. All right? And I submit to you there's more to God's Word than the ink on the page. All right? That's the surface. I don't want to ignore the surface meaning. Uh, but yet I want to be uh, I, I want to be searching for that full comprehension and that full meaning. Uh, if all I get then I'm saying that to say this: if all I get from Exodus 25 and following uh, is a blueprint for the tabernacle, you see, I've missed the point. I've missed the point. Uh, there is a spiritual message there. Uh, there call it a deeper meaning. I, I, I don't mind that so long as we don't. I don't like talking about levels of meaning. All right, uh, but there is a full meaning. All right, there is a full meaning uh, that we must be able to grasp. All right, so that's just some general hermeneutical lessons for you people uh, as we come to look at some of these details. So what is the primary purpose of the tabernacle? Well, we're told here that these people might learn that I am dwelling with them. So it teaches uh, God's covenant fellowship uh, with these people. I think those are the, uh, I gave you three statements last week. Here's this tabernacle that teaches uh, the essence of covenant fellowship. Uh, you're going to have a relationship with me. What does that involve? Well, the tabernacle becomes a picture uh, of what that covenant fellowship with God uh, is all about. Uh, it teaches the holiness of God. Uh, the tabernacle will certainly teach us that we do not trifle with God. Uh, it teaches us that we do not treat God lightly or capriciously or whimsically. Uh, for God is a holy God, and those that come into His presence uh, must do so on His terms. God sets the terms for that fellowship with Him. God sets the way uh, whereby man can approach, and there is no there was no back door to the tabernacle. Right? There was no back door. You couldn't crawl under the curtains. Uh, there was one way in, uh, and it's not going to be without significance that the first thing that we see on our way into that presence of God will be the brazen altar, uh, the place of the sacrifice. Uh, that is not uh, that is not accidental. It's not just because uh, architecturally it would look good in the open court. Uh, that's where it belonged because of the spiritual message that was being taught. Uh, so God is holy. The tabernacle is a great declaration of that absolute holiness of God that as man approaches God, he does it on God's terms, in God's way, or there is no other way uh, whereby a man uh, can make his way uh, unto God. 
uh, and then I say it teaches us something of the very nature of worship. So those three uh, principal lessons, the, the, the term of the tabernacle, I mentioned uh, those last week in passing, uh, that uh, themselves teach us uh, these important truths. The tabernacle, the tent, uh, the tent, uh, the place of meeting, the, place, the dwelling place where God takes up his residence uh, with his people. Uh, you, we, often, we often make reference, you, you've heard this word, uh, the Shekinah glory. Right? You've heard that, preachers refer to that, you read it in books. Here's the Shekinah glory uh, of the Lord's presence. We see that in the theophonic appearance of the cloud and the cloud that descends upon the most holy place in the temple, the tabernacle. We call that the Shekinah glory. And that's good, although that term never occurs uh, in the Old Testament. But that root, Shekinah, uh, Shekinah, it's a Hebrew word. We're going to learn Hebrew. Shekinah simply means dwelling. All right, Shekinah to dwell. It's the dwelling presence. The dwelling presence. Well, that's the root uh, from which the term tabernacle is, com- is based. The tabernacle is the place of dwelling. The Mishkan, the place of dwelling. Here is God taking up his residence, uh, as it were, with his people uh, in that covenant fellowship and communion with him. Uh, the tent, as I said last week, emphasizes the uh, identification of God with his people. Uh, they were in the wilderness, moving around in tents, and so God takes his dwelling place, as it were, in a tent to identify himself specifically with his people. When they get settled in the land, ultimately, that tent becomes the tabernacle. They're in permanent structures. God, as it were, is in this permanent structure, uh, identifying himself uh, with the people. It's the tent of meeting. Uh, that place where he reveals himself uh, and communes with his people. And then the sanctuary, and that's the term that literally means the holy place, which is constantly reminding uh, the people of that holiness of God. All right, now before I look at the details, all right, before I look at and suggest something of the details here, uh, let, let me suggest what I think to be the principal antitypes of this, so as we go through, you can keep this uh, in mind. We're saying that the tabernacle and everything that is involved here is a type. That is, it is a picture prophecy. It's a picture prophecy of something that is spiritual, something that is beyond itself, and that has a future, uh, that has a future manifestation, a future fulfillment. Now, the tabernacle is complex, and there are going to be various things here that are involved. But I would suggest uh, that there are essentially four principal antitypes that we want to be looking for. Uh, as we come to the tabernacle, not the least of which is the fact that it is a type of Christ. All right? The tabernacle is a type of Christ. Here is God dwelling with men. What was the incarnation? What was the incarnation but God dwelling with men? The Apostle John, uh, the Apostle John there in that great first chapter of his gospel, Uh, as he speaks of the Word that was the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He goes on, he goes on, he goes on. Uh, Verse 14 or so, and here is this Word that authorized version, I think, simply says, uh, dwelt among men. Get the imagery there, that tabernacled among men. That's the imagery. He tented himself, uh, if you will, among men. Uh, And so this tabernacle uh, becomes primarily Uh, a prophecy, a picture prophecy uh, of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh that would very directly and very visibly and very really uh, dwell among men, among his people. That was the the reality. 
That was the reality, and everything then in the tabernacle is going to bear witness. It is an analogy then of uh, that incarnation. Uh, Hebrews tells us, and we certainly get the hint of that from Exodus itself, uh, that this becomes a type of heaven. It's a type of heaven. The Lord told uh, Moses, you follow the pattern uh, that I am giving to you. And Hebrews 9, the reference that I referred to just a moment ago, uh, says specifically that this was a pattern of heaven. So I'm not making this up. Right? I'm not, I have the New Testament confirmation and interpretation of that for me if I needed it. Uh, and I certainly rely upon it. Uh, here is that ultimate spiritual uh, presence of God, however it is that we uh, identify heaven. Uh, well, the tabernacle became a picture, a prophecy uh, of the reality of that for God's people. It was also a picture uh, of uh, the church collectively, of God's people collectively, again, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it, as a, it was a symbol, all right? it was an object lesson that God was dwelling among His people then. Uh, we don't have the object lesson, but we have the uh, spiritual truth that was there also, uh, that God dwells with His people. Holy Spirit of God abides with us. Just as that tabernacle went wherever they went, so the Spirit of God goes with us wherever we go. Uh, there is that constant abiding presence of the Spirit of God within, uh, within the church collectively and in individual believers. All right? And in individual believers. We can maybe make those two distinct uses or one. Uh, I, I don't care how you look at it. The church uh, collectively and the church individually. Uh, as individual believers, are the tabernacles. Uh, and again, the New Testament says that flat out, doesn't it? Uh, you are the temple of the living God. Tabernacle, same truth. Uh, Paul uses that expression twice. Uh, this is why I want to make the uh, distinction. Might as well look at this if I can remember where it is. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Second Corinthians, first, first, first Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 6 is 1. We'll come to that one. And I want it also in... Uh, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Say what? Is it 1 Corinthians I want? That sounds more like it, yeah. But keep your finger on first, second Corinthians six, first Corinthians three. That's right. I knew it was a three and a six, but I get those things confused at the beginning. They use Roman numerals here, and I'm not good at that. Um, all right, yeah. Look at uh, look at first uh, Corinthians three, verse sixteen. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, uh, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, you just go through the context. I'm not going to develop this completely here. But in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the temple is not, that he has in mind is not individual believers. All right? Not talking about the individual believer. He's talking about the church corporately. Uh, the church corporately uh, is the temple of God. And the warning here then is to ministers. Uh, you keep chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians well in context. The warning there is given to ministers that they do not uh, do anything that will jeopardize uh, or harm uh, or violate that church in which they are ministering. 
uh, because it is the temple of God. So there's a collective sense. But we come to the other passage uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and, and now I think we do have the individualization uh, of that. Um, in the instructions here that are given uh, concerning uh, separation, uh, verse 16, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. Uh, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is instruction now that is given to individuals uh, and uh, identified as the temple, tabernacle of God. When I talk about temple theology or tabernacle theology, it's all the same theology. Uh, and the New Testament, I think, makes that verification. All right, so as we come then to look at the actual object lesson, uh, there are going to be things here that collectively speak of uh, one or the other of uh, these individual truths. Uh, and it becomes, uh, I, I think, a very remarkable uh, and conspicuous, or it is a conspicuous uh, object lesson that God is giving to teach uh, these important truths. All right, so that's just by way of introduction here. Now, as we come to look at the preparations, all right, the preparation. Let me say something first about the preparations uh, for the tabernacle. As I indicated a moment ago, this was not according to human genius, uh, but it was rather according to God's command. But although God was the originator of this, God was the architect of this, uh, nonetheless there was the involvement of the people, uh, all of the people, uh, in the process uh, of building that offering. Uh, they gave offerings, I should say, in the uh, collecting of all the materials that were necessary for this construction. So this edifice was being built uh, by the labor of the people, from the wealth of the people, from the talents of the people. Uh, they were all involved in one way or another uh, in the construction. Uh, verse uh, 2 of chapter 25. Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Ye shall take my offering. This is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold, silver, and brass. And there's the list of the stuff. Uh, if I can put it this way, this is the stuff that God is going to require to be used. Uh, and he's asking the people uh, to bring this stuff for the particular purpose uh, at hand. In chapter 35, uh, of Exodus, we have the people uh, indeed uh, responding, and God gave them uh, such a willing heart uh, so to give. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 35, and they came, every one whose heart was stirred, uh, whose heart stirred him up, and every one whom his spirit made willing, and they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation, and for all his service, uh, and for all his uh, holy garments. And they came, both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and tablets, all jewels of gold. And every man that offered, offered an offering of gold unto the Lord. Uh, the focus there upon the willingness of the heart. Uh, no compulsion here. There was the willingness of the heart as the people came to understand, to uh, comprehend something of what was going on. Uh, as that need was put before them, the heart made them willing. Uh, to bring these things unto the Lord. Uh, and it just began to multiply. I alluded to this uh, in my remarks uh, on Friday evening. 
that they were giving so well and so much uh, that the time came when uh, they had more than they needed uh, and they had to be restrained uh, from, uh, from giving any more. And that's in chapter 36. Uh, and Moses gave commandment, they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the stuff, is a good biblical word, for the stuff uh, they had was sufficient for all the work to make it in too much. You see. Uh, what, what a testimony that was. Uh, of a heart, no compulsion, I say, there was not any taxation, there was no uh, preaching on the tithe. Uh, but here was the need and the people receiving uh, the purpose and understanding the purpose from that willing heart just gave and gave and gave. So the people were involved. The people were involved directly. Uh, not just in their monies, uh, but in their time and their abilities. Uh, and you can see this uh, over uh, and over again as well. Uh, look at, I, I'm still in chapter 35 here. Uh, look at verse 25. 35.25 And all the women that were wise-hearted did spin with their hands uh, and brought that which they spun, both of blue and purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair and brought that to the, uh, brought that to the tabernacle. Uh, chapter 36, verse 2 And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man uh, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even every one whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work uh, to do it. Men and women both, uh, who had certain abilities and certain uh, skills. Again, their heart was moved uh, to donate, if you will, uh, those skills and that time uh, unto the Lord. And it was done uh, as acts of worship. Uh, and, and I want us to be encouraged here. All right, I want us to be encouraged here. Uh, and, and again, we've talked up about this theme from, from different perspectives uh, before. Uh, but there are many of God's people who see where they are and see that they're not somebody else uh, and, and, and begin to feel sorry for themselves uh, that they cannot make any contribution to the Lord's work. What can I do? What can I do uh, to uh, foster... Uh, the advance, to help the advance uh, of the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I'm not a preacher. Uh, I'm not a teacher. I'm not an elder. I'm not this. I'm not that. Can't play the piano. Can't play the organ. Can't do this. Can't do that. Poor old me. What can I do? I just sit back here. Hey, if you can, as it were, do something as mundane as uh, spinning goat's hair. Right? I, I don't know what kind of talent, skill that took more than I have. But you see, there was something Moses couldn't do. I dare say you could give Moses whatever it was, to, and he wouldn't have a clue uh, as to how to spin goat's hair. Uh, but goat's hair was needed to be spun uh, for the work of uh, the tabernacle. All of the people. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your abilities are, what your talents are, what your gifts are. There is something that you can contribute to the work of God. There is something that you can contribute, that you can be involved in, uh, in, in, in the work of God. It may, not be the, it may not be the public show stuff, you see. It may not be the public show stuff. But the public show stuff is very often the least, the least significant. Uh, we, we look at what the priest did and what Aaron did and whatever on the ta at the tabernacle. 
But I dare say you could not, you could not have had a day of atonement without that goat's hair being spun uh, to make that veil and make that curtain. To see, it's all necessary. It was all necessary. I, I don't, and, and I don't. Well, I don't want to get to that. Sometimes I get. Uh, I, I don't see. Right? I, I don't see that there were little plaques outside the tabernacle that this is the goat hair that I donated, right? This kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I, I gave so much. I gave so much goat hair for three thirds or two thirds of a of a curtain, or well, no, no, they just gave it. They just gave it, uh, and I'm not opposed to that. Or I don't misunderstand me, but I just thought that was well. It's true. They, there was no plaques on there saying this came from Bezalel's wife, and this came from some grandma that. They had nothing else to do. Uh, no, they gave it unto the Lord willingly. All right, uh, calling attention to themselves—that was not the thing. That was not the motive. All right, that was not the motive. Their hearts were moved to give what they could unto the Lord. If you had gold, they gave gold. If they had silver, they gave silver. If all they had was the ability to spin a little goat's hair, then they spun a little goat's hair. Uh, whatever it is that God enables you to do, and it's all, not all the same. And thankfully, God brings us together that are not all the same, you see. Uh, we are not all the same. We don't all have the same abilities. We don't all have the same talents. Uh, what, 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 would, what would this class be if we were all the teacher of the class? You know, if your turn, I'm sitting there saying, ah, shut up, it's my turn. I'm one. You say, no, 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 no. We're all different. All right, we're all different. God's given us different abilities, different gifts, different callings, whatever it is. And don't I say be beating yourself up uh, because you look at somebody else who has this talent and you, I can't do it. Well, of course you can. You're not them. All right? But you are you. All right? You are you. Uh, and God made you and God gave you the abilities and the talents and the skills uh, that he has given to you. Let us donate from that willing heart. Uh, whatever it is that God has given us to do. Well, I see that certainly uh, in the preparations for the tabernacle. Um, mundane efforts. All right? Mundane efforts uh, in the service uh, of the Lord. So, be encouraged. All right? Be encouraged. It's not just Moses and Aaron uh, that are the servants of God here. Uh, it's not just Moses and Aaron in that sense that are the ministers in this tabernacle, in this kingdom work. Uh, it is indeed uh, all of those uh, who have that heart from the Lord made willing to serve uh, in the capacity, whatever it is, that God has given to them. So we see that, I think, as a very uh, important lesson that we ought to learn. All right, I think we come to the plan of the tabernacle. And there are great lessons here in the very uh, division. I'll just suggest this, and then we'll be done for today, I suppose. Uh, I, I touched on this, I think, in brief introduction last week. But as we look at the structure, and this is where my attention wants to come now in these next, uh, next few uh, sessions that we have together. Uh, the structure of the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle. The structure of the tabernacle, the furniture of the tabernacle are the salient points uh, that we must uh, focus our attention upon. All right? They're the salient points that we must focus our attention upon. This is where the principal message, uh, the very obvious message, is being set forth uh, in the tabernacle. If we always keep in mind, all right? if we always keep in mind in trying to interpret types that God is not trying to confuse here, all right? it's not an encoding, it's an illustration, 
uh, and it is uh, an analogy, if you will, that we are supposed to uh, be able, with just some thinking, figure out. It is not an encoded, some kind of mystical, spiritual, only the elite preacher can figure out. This was given to the laymen of the people, uh, of the nation. Uh, The laymen were to see this. Uh, And we want to be careful then that we don't make it uh, more complex uh, than it was intended to be. Now, I say I'm going to focus attention here upon what I think are the salient uh, points, the most obvious uh, lessons. And you can take it from that however far you will, but I would warn you not to take it too far. Three things about the structure, or three parts, I should say, in the structure uh, of the tabernacle. Three different divisions. You have the outer court, you have the holy place, and you have the most holy place. All right, Those three principal divisions uh, that were part of the tabernacle destruction. Now this is greatly involved here with the elements of worship, the uh, regulations that governed what proper worship is, and this is a key lesson to learn. Uh, Our catechism and our confession rather particularly uh, emphasizes that the way of worship, the methods of worship are part of revelation, that it's important therefore not only who we worship, but how we worship, not by Uh, man's own imagination or his own architecture, if you will, uh, but according to God's prescribed way of worship. And the tabernacle teaches some very important lessons uh, about the manner of what biblical and spiritual worship is. The outer court, the holy place, the most holy place. And very obviously, it doesn't take a great deal of uh, sitting around wondering what that means to figure it out. All right, they're in the most holy place, the holy of holies. Uh, in that little room is the Ark of the Covenant, which we're going to see as the climactic presentation uh, of, of the presence of God with His people. Uh, very restricted. The closer you get to God, you see, the closer you come to that most holy place, the more restrictions, uh, the more restrictions are placed uh, upon the people uh, that enter there. Uh, you can get in that outer court. People could come there. In the holy place, only the ordained priest could get there. But in that most holy place, just the high priest, and not just any old time he wanted, uh, but on one day of the year, uh, on the Day of Atonement, he could enter into that place behind the veil, and not without blood. Not without blood. Uh, all of that teaching us that the closer we get to God, the more restrictions there are. Uh, now, Isaiah flat out tells us the theology of that. It's our sins that separate us from God. You see? It's our sins that separate us from God. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 24, Who is it that ascends to that holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. The more fellowship I have with God, the more holy uh, I'm going to be. And the more, fel- the more holy I am, the more unholy I realize myself to be. Uh, and it's somewhat of a conundrum there as we... Uh, make our way closer and closer uh, unto the Lord. So we'll see if we can learn some lessons from that and then we'll take a look at the furniture. Great gospel lessons there. Okay, well let's uh, close in prayer today then we'll come back next week.